0: The American Thoracic Society, we help the world breathe.
1: This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce Dr. Benjamin Singer, the Chief Medical Resident in the Department of Medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. His research interests include lung injury and resident critical care education. Welcome, Dr. Singer. Thanks, Yasha. Hello. I would like to welcome you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. James Kiley, who is the director of the Division of Lung Diseases at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Kiley has written an editorial appearing in the May 15th issue of the Blue Journal entitled Opportunities in Pulmonary Research, Not a Time to Step Back. Welcome, Dr. Kiley.
0: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: Dr. Kiley, to start, please explain your view of the translational research paradigm as it applies to pulmonary medicine.
0: Okay, well, usually by the the term translational, the NIH tends to mean the movement of basic science into the clinical arena or where we are using basic science to be informed by uh, various clinical observations. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and the pulmonary community have invested steadily over the past 40 years or so in research to uncover fundamental information about lung biology. And while animal models of lung diseases have taught us a lot, they really are not sufficient oftentimes, and they don't mimic human diseases and cannot substitute for human research. So we need to take the next step to bring the information to bear on the challenge of preventing, diagnosing, and treating lung diseases. So the key elements are now in place to facilitate this lung translational research paradigm. By that I mean a robust foundation of basic research findings opportunities for strong collaborative partnerships between basic and clinical investigators, the availability of human cells and tissues, an infrastructure, including programs that the Institute has started to facilitate this clinical research. For example, several opportunities are in place to support the community in doing translational research. I mentioned uh, the provision of cells and human tissue. Our Lung Tissue Research Consortium does that. Our biorepository does that. Other resources are available to help us develop new treatments, such as our PAC program, which is the production assistance for cellular therapies or our smart program, which is science moving toward research translation and therapy. There are collaborative programs for stem cell biology, for instance. all of these programs are designed to encourage partnerships for translational research, leading up to programs that are targeted to helping bridge or facilitate that Transition from discovery into the clinical domain. Our newest program in that regard is called CADET, which is our Center for Advanced uh, Diagnostics and Experimental Therapeutics, and these are really um, designed around pushing this translational research paradigm for pulmonary disease. So, translational research is a process that involves many people in order to make progress in moving from discovery to application to practice. We need the help of clinicians and patients and investigators right across the spectrum if that's going to be successful. NHLBI sponsors a lot of programs to facilitate that movement of new treatments along a path to development, starting with discovery and basic information all the way to clinical trials. But translation goes in many directions. But for us, we see it as a continuum of discovery into the clinical domain and a process that involves many stakeholders to really make the whole thing work.
1: Then moving from uh, those broad concepts to a specific example, uh, you you talk about lymphangeliomatosis in your editorial, which is a, a rare disease. How can we apply those concepts that brought such success in the lamb story to more common respiratory diseases like COPD?
0: Well, there are several lessons I think we've learned in finding a treatment, in this case uh, rapamycin for LAM that stabilizes lung function in LAM patients that might apply to these more common diseases like asthma and COPD. First of all, in the LAM story, it was critical early on that patient interest organizations had made a very strong commitment to partner with basic and clinical investigators and the National Institutes of Health, particularly the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute to accelerate research. The patient organizations expressed a very strong desire to find better treatments. They were very successful in raising funds. They, indeed, helped support research studies. They worked with ATS. They worked with NIH uh, to understand the research process. They engaged investigators. They established high-quality annual research meetings to bring together the basic scientists with the clinicians and the patients. Probably as important, the patients were very well-informed and highly motivated to provide biological samples, and they were committed to participate in research, both observational studies and later clinical trials. So the patient organizations representing the common lung diseases could do a lot more along these lines. Secondly, the discovery of a defective gene helped attract basic scientists to investigate the underlying mechanisms and search the gene pathways for treatment targets. This was done in a focused effort with clinical and basic investigators, again, working with patients together towards this common goal of better treatments. And then the exchange of information and the formation of collaborations and a sense of urgency were all aided by the annual meetings that were held. Investigators had access to human tissue, and they were able to use or quickly develop informative model organisms in Drosophila, mouse, rat, all of which provided valuable data that aided to the quick translation of the initial findings. And then finally, the drug itself, uh, rapamycin, was already approved by the FDA for other uses. This allowed the clinical studies in humans to start almost immediately once the proof of principle had been established in the animal models. So other currently approved drugs may have as yet undiscovered uses. It may also apply to more common diseases such as asthma and COPD. And so I think there are a number of lessons that really we learned from the rapid movement of a disease that was practically unrecognized 15 years ago to where we have a treatment now that may actually stabilize lung function.
1: And as a a pulmonary research community, what can we do to uh, foster patient interest groups uh, and further their efforts?
0: Well, I think the important thing there is awareness. Uh, We need to be absolutely certain that the patient groups have clear, definable, uh, achievable goals, that they're articulated, that they uh, work together in unison, not in a competitive environment, and again, harness the energy, the enthusiasm, the drive to work along this spectrum from discovery to clinical application to helping bring results to the patients. I don't think that we can look at every disease that exists, and certainly not in the respiratory area, like LAM, that you know we're going to have enormous strides forward and immediate results. I mean, this is a process that goes on for a while that I think we, we need to you know cultivate, uh, but the ingredients are all there, and I think we need to continue to have messages that all can subscribe to and hopefully carry forward, because it is going to be this interaction of researchers, uh, basic and clinical scientists, along with the physician community, the practicing community, the patient groups, the funding organizations, and the public at large that is going to need to all uh, rally around the concept that we can do more and we can find treatments for rare diseases as well as the common diseases.
1: You mentioned the uh, watershed moments of finding the gene targets that really furthered the process, and certainly genome-wide association studies hold a, a lot of promise in furthering our understanding of respiratory disease. So, What do you believe is the contribution of genetic polymorphisms to the population risk of common lung diseases like COPD and asthma?
0: Well, right now, the real value we're getting from the genome-wide association studies, the GWAS studies, is a new understanding about the mechanisms of disease. So, so far, GWAS data has not led to any immediate practical diagnostic tests but investigators are discovering new genes. They're discovering pathways related to lung diseases that would not have otherwise been identified or may not have been identified. So it's going to be important to follow up on that research on these pathways because they may, again, reveal more about the pathogenesis of lung diseases. For example, a recent article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine showed an association of a gene for mucus with interstitial lung disease, and that uh, is now challenging us to think about interstitial lung disease in a new way. I think these kind of paradigms, these kind of breakthroughs may open up new vistas for us to consider other concepts and, and approaches to advancing new therapies. There's no doubt that this will be a challenge because both COPD and asthma, the more common lung diseases are polygenic diseases, and we've just started to uncover the genome-wide genetic architectures. So we've got a ways to go here. This is not going to be science that's going to turn around rapidly. We're going to have to keep at this for a while. Also, the addition of many rare variants of the human genome to the GWAS platforms will now allow investigators to screen rare variants that may predispose to common diseases. So the GWAS technology, is also the platform for genome-wide DNA methylation profiling, which is enabling studies of epigenomics in lung disease. And this is especially exciting since environmental exposures may induce disease via, via different epigenetic alterations. So I think it it continues to hold great promise. I think we still have yet to see it play out. It has not reached the practitioner. It has not reached the clinic. But I think that there's a lot that we will extract from this, particularly in terms of understanding mechanisms, pathobiology, and and hopefully, you know, the the genetic basis and how genes may make one susceptible or how the, the repair processes may proceed in some and not others. So I think we're going to get there. It's just that this is going to be slow, and it's going to take a commitment to continue this line of research with the understanding that there may be, you know, big payoff downstream.
1: Do you see a role in the coming decades for genomics or next-generation sequencing as a tool to be used in the pulmonary clinic?
0: Well I think the answer is probably because next-generation sequencing is the first technology that enables us to discover any gene-related mutation in the human genome without being limited to predefined candidate genes or pre-selected single nucleotide polymorphism. So this is truly an unbiased platform for discovery, and it has the real potential to allow reclassification of persons or people at various levels of risk by genetic risk thresholds. So there is a tremendous opportunity here that this next-generation sequencing potentially could aid as a new clinical diagnostic tool, and it's already being used for some of the monogenic diseases. So we can expect there to be some continued movement in the pulmonary uh, clinics, uh, maybe even around the area of newborn screening. And I think the other important element around next-gen sequencing is that the concept that that we can use this to study common lung diseases. So we're currently supporting a large-scale exome sequencing project that includes Mm -hmm. sequencing of more than 1,500 DNA samples from multiple lung diseases, so asthma, COPD, cystic fibrosis, And the cost of exome sequencing is coming down significantly. We're probably at around $1,000 a sample right now. So this technology also provides us an opportunity to sequence messenger RNA, microRNA, and other non-coding RNAs in human cells. So it has the potential to really bring us a lot of tools to not only advance studying the basic biology, but also with the hope and expectation that somewhere in the not-too-distant future that we will use some of this information uh, in the pulmonary clinic as a tool that can be informative in terms of either screening, diagnostics, or the one that most people are optimistic about is targeted, personalized therapy. And if we can uh, apply a lot of these approaches, we may get there.
1: And are we headed toward a future of personalized lung medicine where therapies really are targeted toward uh, specific susceptibilities or what we know about genetics of an individual patient?
0: Well, I think the answer to that is that's the goal. I think that's one goal that the NIH has subscribed to, that there's been some enthusiasm around that. I think that the GWAS and next-generation sequencing can generate a tremendous amount of information related to human health, both the common and and rare, as well as common and rare diseases. And I think these approaches are are beginning to, again, reveal genetic risk factors for disease, the gene-gene and gene-environment interactions, potential diagnostic markers, you know, pathways, networks, uh, and, and truly novel drug targets. Now, how these technologies may be applied in clinical practice is not yet there, and I don't think we've seen it in in too many areas that we can point to success. But it's clear that that translation of discoveries based on these technologies going to the clinic can take place, and it can take place relatively quickly. But, you know, despite all the successes with GWAS in identifying common genetic variants associated with lung disease, the identified common genetic variants still only account for a small portion of the heritability of inherited disease variation. So, you know, we still, you know, this is a a puzzle that we're still trying to put together. We have a lot of missing pieces still. And we know that there's a few causal variants. They have been identified. And so we can move from a platform of some discovery, and and the idea then now is to see if we can examine the potential contribution of rare genetic variants to lung diseases. So this requires, you know, initial use of sequencing technologies again. I think rapid advancements in next generation technologies are enabling detection of these rare variants, and, and they may play an important role in the complex lung disease etiology. So over the next few years, I would expect that this next generation sequencing technologies will kind of reshape a bit our understanding of many human lung diseases. They hopefully will guide researchers to develop new diagnostic tools, accelerate discovery of new genes and novel drugs, That may target critical genes that are in the causal pathway towards development of lung diseases. So that's the promise. That's that's kind of the paradigm that I think we're all outlining as a, a potential vision or direction. And I think it applies to lung disease. It applies to other diseases as well. But for us, it's an exciting time for the investigative community to embrace this type of research and really utilize these tools and technologies and try to bring them to bear on questions that are important to lung disease. I'll just add an aside to this at the end here of this question because the, you know, I think many, many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, people had questions that the technology and tools and and skill sets weren't there. We just didn't have them. Now we can ask those questions and apply these tools and likely make some real significant progress.
1: In thinking about the complexity of the research sphere, it kind of brings to mind an anecdote about NASA in the 1990s when they adopted a so-called better, faster, cheaper model of developing these Mars exploratory missions, and after a few public failures, they learned a colloquial lesson that you can only have two out of those three. In other words, high-quality development delivered in a reasonable time frame is costly and inexpensive projects can often be done quickly, but quality suffers. So as we uh, accelerate lung research to match the rising burden of disease, what are the trade-offs in terms of quality, timing, and cost?
0: Yeah, good question. It's very topical. I think for medical research, success, timing, and cost may be more a function of seeing an opportunity. So in the case of LAM, uh, the drug was already marketed, so the cost of success might have been considered relatively low. I mean, the NASA model there might fit is the one where we need to bring many ideas together to find one that works. And this is certainly true in terms of bringing new treatments to market. So if you look at it as a funnel, I think opening that funnel as large as it can be on the one side to get that one or two really exciting, viable ideas is important. And I, I think that's why NIH uses a lot of its research dollars for investigator-initiated research. In fact, in the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, 75 to 80 percent of our extramural dollars go to investigator-initiated research so that we can keep that open end of the funnel as large as, as, as it can be. But clearly, I think we have to be cautious. We can't trade off much. if if our goal is to advance new therapies and find cures. I just mentioned that uh, one approach that has been uh, discussed in in a number of uh, venues is uh, can we develop uh, more simple, pragmatic clinical trials, for example, sub-phenotype stratified clinical trials that include treatment response analyses, smaller-scale studies to demonstrate proof of concept or feasibility. All these may save time, they may speed up the process, and they may save dollars. Another is to really leverage the technologies and resources supported by NIH and the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute to reduce the cost and time. So I think the NASA model of faster, better, cheaper is clearly one that we would all love to emulate, but I think we have to be cautious in how much... Uh, we trade one for another and how good a job the the research community can do at designing trials in the most cost-effective way in a pragmatic and practical manner that applies to maybe a broader segment of the population. I think we're clearly going to be uh, looking at at ways to do that because uh, with limited resources you're you're not going to be able to do quite as many and, and so therefore those bigger studies that are going to be more definitive studies are going to be one ones that, that are going to need you know a, a little bit of a different paradigm than, than one that's been used heretofore.
1: And as we try to open up the, the funnel, as it were, it kind of brings to mind this idea of uh, innovation and, and significance and how those things can kind of be at odds at times in biomedical research, how, how can we best promote innovation while remaining focused on high yield and pertinent research questions?
0: Well, for this one, we rely heavily on the pulmonary community that that we serve. Uh, I think we need investigators to be current. We need them to be pushing on the edges of the scientific boundaries. As important to all this in terms of the process, we need the investigators who serve as reviewers for the NIH to uh, understand and encourage risk-taking and recognize new paradigms. I think as the funding climate becomes more difficult and complex, the community is often less willing to take risks, and that, I think, will impede innovation, and so I think it's important that we try not to lose that balance and at the same time continue to strive for some proportion of our research portfolio and the ideas that come into the NIH for funding in the high-risk, potentially high-yield category. Some of the recent initiatives that the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has done, I think, are, are trying to push that concept a bit. I'll just point to one, which is our new Centers for Advanced Diagnostics and Experimental Therapeutics, we call this one CADET, and that enables some, some of that high-risk research. And built into that program is an understanding that there may be failures, and those failures are inherent to this process. I think that we can't... Push the envelope of novel drug discovery or new targets, or how do we push um, you know uh, ways in which we can identify uh, pathways that may be druggable without you know uh, taking some risk and at the same time maybe not having as many successes as we like however, I think the way in which we've approached that balance between innovation and significance is um, in a very strategic manner so that we are careful not to take Excess risks or unjustifiable risks, I think we have to have some reasonable expectation that that we can get something from it in, in, in a, some somewhat of a defined period of time. but I think that there's room for this, and i don 't think we should just close the door and just assume that everything has to be very safe, you know modestly incremental kinds of research in the years ahead. I think we 've got to be bold, and I think we 've got to have ideas and, and we 've got to be able to pursue some of those ideas with with some of the funding mechanisms that we have available to us today.
1: In your editorial, you mentioned the development of surrogate outcome measures that can correlate therapy to clinical outcomes. What are the advantages of studying surrogate endpoints over hard endpoints like morbidity and mortality?
0: Well, I think that the issue around surrogate endpoints is one that goes back to the whole idea of how do we design our clinical trials for the future. I think, as we all can appreciate, clinical trials are, are under very cost and time pressure. So, measuring mortality and some morbidities requires large numbers of subjects and long follow-up times. And that's almost uh, inherent in using the hardest of all endpoints, that being mortality, and as the outcome in our clinical trials. If we can find predictive surrogate endpoints, we could potentially cut the cost and the time of testing those promising therapies. One of the programs that we started a couple years ago is called Spiromics, and this is a public-private partnership that is attempting to find molecular biomarkers for COPD. And we think that if we can really do an extensive sub-phenotypic characterization of patients looking at molecular fingerprints, genomic data, looking at traditional clinical outcome measures, that we may be able to identify those alternative outcome parameters or markers that will improve the efficiency of future clinical trials. We've been working with our colleagues in the FDA uh, in this program, and we're optimistic that the concept that we could identify upstream markers that might be good uh, substitutes, if you will, for the hard endpoints of mortality... And that might give us an incentive to then really work on multiple trials, uh, looking at very, you know, testing various therapies. It may also be another way to incentivize, if you will, the pharmaceutical industry to also, you know, screen through their libraries and look for potentially novel agents because if they can do them quicker and faster, screen them and, and test them without having to do very long, costly. Studies of uh, with many patients, we we could potentially get some answers. And at the same time, exclude things that people think might work, but really, um, at the end, after the research is over, it turns out that they're not. So we can exclude things that people think might have worked, and now we know they don't, or we might be able to uncover new things. I think that the surrogate marker outcome uh, concept is one that's been around. It's used in the heart area quite frequently in other disciplines as well. I think the lung community really doesn't have anything to grab hold of here, so um, it's an area that requires some additional research and
1: attention. I think conversely, are there disadvantages to using surrogate endpoints for certain uh, certain trial designs?
0: Well, I think that you know there's there's always the biggest one and that's the one does it really correlate with something that's most meaningful both in the patient terms and for clinical management. And so I think that you know these have to always be balanced. You know, I don't think there'll be one surrogate marker that will be used for all pulmonary studies. I think that they're going to it'll be tailored more than likely to what disease are we looking at? What what the population is? and, and you know, a little bit of, you know, what's, what's the intervention.
1: As we've been discussing, improving health is the ultimate goal of, of the entire translational research paradigm. And kind of at the, the far end of the paradigm, where do you see public policy efforts, for example, regarding uh, smoking cessation?
0: Well, from a, a public health point of view, our highest goal is always prevention and public health programs on healthy lifestyles. They'll continue to play uh, a very important, central, critical role. Knowing about a disease is clearly one of the first steps in preventing it. So we have a number of programs out there that we've launched over the years to raise awareness about diseases, to bring to the public an appreciation of what the diseases are, the magnitude of the problem. We've done programs that allow us to provide guidelines for the practicing community so that they can manage the patients with these diseases. The more recent one we did underway now is our uh, Learn More, Breathe Better campaign. This is one to raise awareness about uh, COPD. And in fact, uh, the program's only been in place for about three or four years or so now, but indeed we're starting to see awareness for COPD increasing. And this is probably not just the result of the campaign, but a collaborative, collective effort from lots of stakeholders to push this this concept of of increasing awareness to one of the leading causes of death in this country. I think that's an important concept, I think, as we try to to push translational research because we do have to align that to public policy efforts. I think the drivers of public policy and and policy change will always be the evidence that something works and can be applied to a broad population. I think that's one of the um, real success stories from the smoking cessation efforts over the years. Smoking cessation policies really have been very successful as a result of a very solid evidence base of the negative health effects of smoking. And so I think that we're probably seeing a movement a little bit in the direction of secondhand smoke, maybe indoor air pollution, that also may lead to some policy changes. But it's that translational research, it's that mounting evidence, it's that movement of the science from discovery to application to implementation that I think will drive the policy. Another good example where the translational research could perhaps really influence public policy down the road is research that will reduce the health disparities for asthma, for example. If this research can determine sort of key elements of what works and not add a tremendous amount of cost to the healthcare care system or the delivery of health care, I would see that as, a, as another one that might shape public policy around what we can do to uh, close the gap in terms of health disparities.
1: Do you have any uh, final thoughts regarding the editorial or regarding translational science as we move forward? Well, I think
0: my parting uh, views would be what I uh, tried to emphasize at the end of the article, and, and that is that we have just enormous amount of tools opportunities, concepts, and technologies to draw from now. We have a very enthusiastic and uh, I think a very collaborative environment with the pulmonary community. And to me, bringing these together and bring the the talent that we have to the uh, various uh, questions that are really important uh, I think are are really where uh, we need to go in, in, uh, in the future and and I would say even though in in spite of the fact that there's a lot of negative climate right now about the funding and, and, you know, the future, you know, uh, biomedical research, I think this is not a time to sort of just say, well, I'm going to step back and and, w- and wait it out, because I think we will miss a great opportunity to uh, to move forward. And I, I hope that the pulmonary community uh, embraces that concept, because we will lose tremendous ground uh, if people sit on the sidelines and fail to continue to engage and continue to press that. and envelope and and bring those new concepts forward. And and so we would want to see continued momentum, continued movement, continued enthusiasm, and and the best science always does get funded. So we hope that the pulmonary community continues to send us the the very best science that they can conduct and really embrace these technologies and apply them to important, significant public health problems, and we know there are many of them in in the lung area, and not be uh, fearful of the climate, because I think that there uh, there are very very many uh, important questions that we still have unanswered.
1: Dr. Kiley, thank you for speaking with me today.
0: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, and and I hope that we'll have the opportunity to talk more in the future.